Sean Lynn in the pub for a dram with friends where we talk about faith, family, food, and fun. Pull up a chair and I'll pour you a drink. Episode 80. We are extremely blessed to have Mike McDonald join us in the pub all the way from the heart of Mexico. Sit back as I pour us a dram and listen to him talk about his work with the poor. The studio? Know? Oh yeah, it's beautiful. You got up there we got pictures. Actually I gotta oh. put them so in behind yeah, that's yeah. Mother Angelica there, so all right. We'll have to have a look one of the when we go out, but all right. So we're we're back in the pub with Michael McDonald, all the way from Mexico. He's been a guest early on. You were one of our first guests, actually. Really? And so the form, like we were still figuring out when you and I had well, a Well, it was probably so long ago you forgot how <laughs> terrible I was, and you now you're asking me again. No, if I recall, the, the stories were so good that we just had to stop and save. uh-oh, this is just like the, the pub where the phone goes off. Father Marius, it. I'm uh, recording a dram with friends, so can I call you back in? Okay, don't worry, don't worry. I worry. This is live. <laughs> okay, talk to you later. Okay, bye. That's our friend that I'll meet. Yeah, you're going to go meet Father Marius, and uh, we'll, uh, I'll put this on vibrate just like you would in the pub, and hopefully the other phone doesn't go off. The other phone. <laughs> the work phone. That's the God. I had to get a God Squad phone and a work phone. And oh, okay. So if, you see, my memory was so good from the last dram that you you had rum. So I poured you just a little dram of rum. This okay. is bamboo rum. It's very good. From Ireland? No, no. From uh, Barbados. Oh, a little closer to where you are. Right. I'll see. Are you going to make it? Well, at least you... No, no, I'm going to be fine. Whew. So... Thank you. What What do they drink in the heart of Mexico? Is it... Like, tequila's the the famous one. Well, the fam well up in the mountains where I am, there's very little tequila. Yeah. Uh, that's a, kind of a refined drink and, and all that. They drink a drink called mezcal that is made from the cactus, as is the, the tequila, but... It's more home-brewed. Another drink from the cactus, Aguardiente. But then nowadays, it's more and more cases and cases of beer at any oh, yeah. village festival. Okay. Truckloads drive in with warm beer uh, because there's no, not enough fridges to get it all cool. Okay. So they're, they're kind of like the English, drinking the warm well, beer. Well, I only heard that <laughs> last week, that the English tend to drink at room temperature their beer. And here I have been complaining. Sometimes I go to a fiesta and I see 200 cases of beer. Yeah. And they offer me one and it's room temperature and I don't even want one, but well, I accept it just to be nice. My dad, uh, growing, when I was growing up, he'd tell stories. So he worked at the Lethbridge Brewery back in, way back in the day and 
he worked with a couple English guys, and <laughs> you, you'd get a free pint or two uh, with your lunch, and they'd go and draw their beer earlier so that it would oh, be gosh. warm enough to drink no. at lunchtime. No, I couldn't. I couldn't handle that. I can't. I don't drink much cold beer, but at yeah. least if it's cold, it goes down differently. Yeah, yeah. It's for it's, me. It's always interesting to to hear what other cultures and and people do. So that's so you're in a a unique part of Mexico, the mountains. You say. Yeah. Well, I, I'm in the spot up in the mountains of a state called Guerrero, and the mountains are considered the poorest region in the country. Okay. And uh, the area I live in, I live in a town called Tlapa. And Tlapa's called the heart of the mountain because around it, mostly on dirt and mud roads, are 700 villagers. Oh, wow. And all those villagers, if they want a hardware store or a paper store or a bank or a hospital or government office, they pretty much have to get into Tlapa. And so it's the commercial center for the whole region. And most of what Mission Mexico does, the group that I work with, it is with the indigenous villagers. The people come from three First Nations cultures from down there. Okay. You have the Tunzavi, the Mepa, and the Nahuatl. And each culture is a little different, and you treat the people. Like there's certain things that you can do in one culture that's not respectful in another. But over... 40 years that I've been there, I think I can... You picked up a thing or two? I picked up a lot. Sometimes I still put my foot in my mouth or something like that. I'd hate to imagine what I'd do down there. No, no, no. (laughs) But a smile, Sean, does it. Goes a long way. A smile goes a long way. Even if the language isn't there and and, uh, the people tend to be trustworthy, more or less. I say more or less because I know people, even Mexican people from the city who've gone there, and if their attitude doesn't involve a bit of humility and dialogue rather than somebody coming from the top down. Talking down to them. Yeah, then they have a little difficulty getting along. And that's understandable because it's that dignity of the human person. Yeah. Even if they're not the, the, the richest people that they have that innate dignity, and that's yeah. the beauty of what Mission Mexico is well, doing. Well, I think even we in Mission Mexico, we learned. Yeah. If you had asked me 40 years ago, what are you going to Mexico for? I would have said, I'm going to help the poor. If you ask me now what we're doing down there, I would put something like, we are accompanying beloved brothers and sisters as they struggle for life. And... They help me as much as I help them be the kind of person that I want to be and that I believe God wants me to be. So it's uh, so that's whenever, a... whenever I speak to anybody who talks about they want to be a missionary, the word I always want to hear them say is dialogue. We come as partners in working together. Uh, if I think they're, they're going down thinking that, well, I'm going to go down and save them. Yeah. Uh, I would inside. I'm thinking. I hope they stay home. Well, and it, and that's the same principle for 
ministry to men is is you want to walk alongside them. Exactly. You you don't go and 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 say you're living the wrong way, brother, and you need to repent yeah. and be saved. There there's a way to do that. Yeah. Like one learns. Yeah. When I went down, when I was first down there, let's say I remember an experience in 1984, I believe it was. I still didn't speak Spanish very well. And then Day of the Dead, I went to this village called Shonacatlan. And outside the church in Shonacatlan had income vendors from the state of Puebla. And they're selling candles. And I see all these very, very, very poor people buying candles with a little bit of money they've gotten for their dead family members. And inside... I'm thinking, oh, no, God doesn't want them buying candles for the dead. He wants them buying food and medicine and vegetables and fruit for the living, a blanket for your children. But since I didn't speak the Spanish, I couldn't tell them that. I wanted to. I have a degree in theology. I thought I knew what God wanted. Well, in 1984, my father died. And so the next year that I was there with the people, in Alcusauca, the night of the Day of the Dead, I bought a big candle and I went and spent the whole night in the cemetery, just sitting there with this candle and the flame growing. And I'm talking to my dad. My dad was definitely talking to me. The other families from the village were saying, Mike, what's your candle for? My dad, oh, who was he? What did he do? How did you get along with him? What happened? How did he die? And I'll listen, I'm saying to them, look, your candles, what are they for? Well, three of them are for children that died, one of them for my grandmother, etc., etc. When I walked out of that cemetery the next morning, I thought to myself, that was the best spiritual experience of my life. Wow. And here I am, a year ago, I was going to try to tell the people, don't do this. Stay home, buy fruit and vegetables for your children. That spiritual experience, I think, nourishes the people. And still, for me, the Day of the Dead, is uh, it's never been the same since my father became a part of it, and now my mother is as well. So uh, it, helped, it opened my eyes to realizing, hey, Mike, you think you know a lot about God. I think these people know God a lot, <laughs> and I want to stay here longer and learn from them, and I'm still learning from them. So I'm and, a blessed person. And that's the beauty is is with age and a little more gray hair comes that wisdom. And uh, and I couldn't help but hearing that, what a beautiful way to remember the history of your family. The Like we just uh, had Remembrance Day the other day. Yeah. And, you know, where everybody looks to their loved ones that passed yeah. during World War One or World War Two. It keeps alive those memories and oh, yeah. history of of your family, right? Yeah. No, it's it, um, like I say, I, I'm still learning from the people. They're they're terribly poor, but they have great faith in God, and I think one of the reasons that I'm here in Calgary right now is to express gratitude to people in the diocese of Tlapa that is helping Mission Mexico. Because it's one thing to be with a very poor person and they have a sick wife 
and say, well, I'll pray for them. And sometimes that's all we can do. But it's very different to be able to say, well, look, I have friends in Canada that, that are helping people that are very ill. I can go with you to the drugstore and help you buy the medicine that you don't have the money to get. And maybe it's not successful. Maybe the wife is going to die. But the fact that somebody... I'm, I often think that the difference between poverty and misery is accompaniment. The, the, the actual situation is almost the same. The hunger, the lack of health care, the difficulties educating your children. But if you're not facing it alone, then you're poor that you can nourish hope. Whereas if you're lost with all of these challenges coming at you, it's... I don't very often find the people despairing very few people commit suicide down there, even though their their situations are situations that are heartbreaking. But um, they they trust somehow that even well, even in the worst of situations that God is still present and that life will go on and uh, they keep struggling. And Mission Mexico, I think that's what we're doing that nourishing that desire to struggle and there's enough lights like Mission Mexico gives bursaries to poor ind indigenous students and I go when they graduated I go to the fiesta that the family offers and mm. I see the mother crying in gratitude the father crying in gratitude the student crying and half of the villagers crying in gratitude to Mission Mexico and, for and allowing yet. this person to have gotten a university degree. And uh, they don't even know who Mission Mexico is or where Canada is, but well, they, they get involved and they follow up. And that's where it's, it's so important to give to charities like Mission Mexico just to, to help those people act. But you were also saying some of the some of the culture is being lost because now there's electricity and and uh, it's well, where that there here we have that isolation yeah. here mm -hmm. where like as a kid we were talking I'd run around with all the neighborhood kids everybody you knew your neighbors and yeah. and and the front drive garage as we say in crime prevention is is probably the worst thing because people just drive into their garage shut it and tune out where they live. No, yeah. For example, uh, I think up in the mountains, yeah. uh, most of the adults have not gone much to school. So where do they get their education? From television now. And uh, the few times I watch television, it's soap operas where all the men have three women and, uh, and their violence and... Uh, as very in terms of educational, next to nothing, and that's got to impact people, I think, but not in a very positive way. And uh, so, definitely, I'm not a big fan of Mexican television. I'm sorry. <laughs> and uh, but then again, I probably wouldn't be if I don't. I haven't watched Canadian programs. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. maybe the cultures have changed up here too. Uh, yeah, I, no, I, yeah, 
and that's that's something that even myself I've found myself trying to like I don't need to watch this show or that show because life's too short sometimes is what I yeah. it's it, it's just trying to find those priorities and and getting out of it's it's habitual for a lot of people too right you just yeah. get into that habit. Or the soap operas yeah they just keep you hooked yeah. right yeah. and and that's what a lot of the programming is even if it's a crime show or whatever they're they're just basically soap operas to try and keep you going and because yeah. you want to entertainment tune. yeah and but the entertainment i think um over it, it affects your psyche it makes affects your thinking and uh, uh i just think that television could be such a good medium for for education purposes, yeah. for programs that encourage communal development, respect for the native cultures, uh, stuff like that. But very often, but it's hard. the little bit of a soap opera, and the only the only natives I see there are the maids in oh, the house, okay. where the the man and the woman are both telling them clear the table and stuff. Like that so, what pride do you have? In your native culture, and when you see that you're treated as a second-class citizen, I'd like that's that. where you get to see the fiestas and the celebrations. Well, that, that's for the... well. The mountains. I, I feel like I'm the most blessed person on the face of the earth because there's 37 million Canadians, I think, more or less. Yeah. And I'm the only Canadian that I know that lives down there. I go to these fiestas, but they're not tourist shows. No. Uh, it's the way that people from their hearts are doing things now. Maybe as an outsider, I could criticize some things, like in the cultures down there, men have more voice and vote than women. Uh, one of the problems in one of the three cultures that's there uh, is that young girls are often sold by their very poor parents at the age of 12 or 13 for money. Uh, it's a way for them to survive. Uh, somebody shows up and say, I'll give you $1,000 for your 12-year-old daughter. And you're thinking, well, she's hanging out with this other poor guy. And when, the culture's down there. When the, a woman marries a man, the woman always goes to the man's house. Okay. So the father and the mother are losing the daughter. Like, yeah. she's always going to be at the spouse's house and helping the in-laws and her own children later. They're not, and so if somebody offers $1,000, they're very often tempted to take it uh, without consulting the young girl. Which you said prior to the involvement that it was a, very much a negotiation with the whole family. Before, it was a cultural situation where the whole village was pretty much present and listening as the elders would give their point of view about whether this would be a good match and who's going to provide the goats for the goat meat at the fiesta and all this sort of stuff. It was a, a ceremony and it was respectful in the sense that usually there probably were some abuses. Usually the young woman knew the young man and was hoping that her parents would agree Mm. But unfortunately, and it, there's cases, 
but they and maybe it's only because social media is making it more public now uh where very often the young woman has no say whatsoever and sometimes she's married off to a 50-year-old man that she's never met and the parents get the money and the girl's supposed to go and live with this guy and sometimes the girls escape and go to the human rights commission in Klapa where I live and the human rights commission all oh, will help you out we'll find your safe place to stay but then back in the village the family gets punished yeah for not coming well, through on the contract not following yeah so it's it's a difficult situation because even the human rights people want to work with the men and many times the women to help them see things differently but if they're going back to the village and kind of saying hey you can't do that that abruptness yeah uh, is well it, and, it's not good relationships well and i know that even our police service has had that issue uh with some of the immigrant coming from africa where it's very much like i paid good goats for this way <laughs> and and for us that's just a foreign concept what do you mean that she's your property no that's not yeah. the way it works here yeah. so trying to educate and bridge those gaps sometimes is extremely difficult and and you you've got to do it though in a respectful tactful way that's, right that's right because uh once again it's it's very difficult in a culture where the women grow up in that culture and yeah. accept too often uh their role as victims you know they, they even even the women will joke about well my husband beat me last night but at least he paid attention to me i'm serious i've heard that on occasion it's better to be re recognized at least as being there than rather ignored or things like this it's it's just it's beyond me i'm going to die without having the answers but there are people and groups that are trying to create a more humane so relationship between where, men and women so where does the church fit in in that like up here uh god squad we're trying to do ministry to men and challenge men to fulfill their role as husband and father as christ did and died for his bride and yeah um i dare say a lot of the priests which is basically who people down there think the church is yeah. the priests because they are the ones that have access to god in the minds of a lot of these people they are the intermediaries and they have power through the sacraments and all that to get god to do what they hope god will do this is the mentality in a lot of the people and uh, a lot of the priests i think avoid the issue because they know they're going to antagonize some of the people if they if they bring it up and so it's simpler to talk about heaven and hell or uh so it, or, it's no different than here in canada or the united states where s s some priests just don't want to talk about some of the tough issues. Probably. I I'm not sure. I 
this is my first time in Calgary in three years. I'm not. Yeah. I don't want well, to it, pretend. It. Well, it, it is like you you hear about priests getting, as it were, canceled. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people get canceled for sharing an opinion or or even if it is official church teaching if if it's not presented in exactly the what right loving way and, and somebody gets offended then and, and that's where a lot of uh, people no matter not just priests like people just don't want to broach those subjects yeah. cuz it's it's stepping in a minefield yeah. <laughs> So what do you what do you do for f fun down there? Oh, my fun. My, I I rarely leave the mountains. Okay. Uh, if you ask me what you if I have a day off, I don't. Uh, but if I want, I can pretty much try to adjust the calendar. And if I've got free time, I tend to go out to the villages and stay one night, two nights, three nights, and uh, just living with the people and speaking with them and uh, being with them. It's like being in heaven, even, even in the midst of the, the poverty. And, uh, you know, sometimes I'll go and there's somebody very, very ill in the family and, uh, and there's not much you can do, but I don't, I don't know. Being in a situation of accompaniment, of love, um, and Jesus did say, what you've done for one of these, the least of my sisters or brother, you're doing for me, yeah, and uh, stuff like that. So one does what one can. Many times, all it can be is a blessing. The, the people think that since I taught scripture at the seminary down there, or I was the bishop's secretary for 10 years, many of them call me father. And I say, well, look, I'm not a father. I've never been a priest. And they say, oh, we're sorry, father. <laughs> and uh, and they'll ask me to pray for a sick person and all that, and of course I do, and uh, and you're the, you're a company, and even silence. I mentioned earlier, a smile can make a big difference, and uh, an arm around the shoulder of a father who's just lost his child, um, it can matter. And yeah, so yeah, and I, I, try, I, I just try to do little things. You, I wake up in the morning and ask God to help me to live the way God wants me to live that day. And in the night, if I try to thank God for all of the experiences I had that day where it was evident that God was with me, I wouldn't sleep at night. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh that's why they call I, it I summarize rest. it yeah <laughs> that's uh, a, that's amazing like just to to hear and share and i agree with what you say about the smile because that's one of the things that i found very hard for me uh during covid with the masks is because i feel it's important <laughs> to to smile at the kids and just let them know that yep. they're seen and recognized and mm. And being uh, being present, as you say, yeah. that's uh, that's great for. So, what do you do for food? Like, uh, are you? Uh, no, do you I, have a go-to dish that you prepare? Or? No, I'm I'm I. My mother was a traditional mother when I grew up in Nova Scotia. Yeah, the women did the cooking. 
My father was a mechanic, so I was in the shop. I never learned to cook. And so wake up in the morning, if I'm at home, I have uh, two cups of coffee. That's it for breakfast, pretty much. I know that everybody says you should. I try to walk a fair bit to stay half in shape. Um, people in Tlapa, where I live, know that I'm a lousy cook, and I get invited to eat a lot. And out in the villages, uh, if I know I'm going to be there for a few days, I tend to bring with me a little bit of cheese or a little bit of beef yeah. so that the family, I can give it. And it gives, they're eating and I'm eating. There you go. And, uh, that, that sounds and stuff prudent. like that. So uh, I never suffer. I never suffer. Um, God is good all the time. So. Yes, he is. And, and you're, you're, I'm glad that you're able to join us tonight and just so that I can capture some of that wisdom that oh my you, gosh. You, you've grown like mm. in today's world, what you're doing is mind boggling for, for many that you left uh, a teaching career to go live in the poorest of poor places. And yet, you're the happiest you've ever been is what you, you, you always say. Well, I think down there, when you're a teacher, like I was a high school teacher, and you have this hope that you're putting in a grain of sand toward something positive in the life of that student. Yeah. Well, down there, everything is so immediate uh, you're there and there's sick people, there's dying people, there's people that want to study. And for example, being there for so long, I, there are good people in a lot of the Mexican institutions and stuff like that. And they respect me and I respect them and they help me and I help them when I can. And so there's a lot of times, for example, uh, the slideshow I showed today at St. John Brebeuf School it showed a house and the family living in the house. And you know, most people would cry and say, that's not a house. That's not even a shack. Well, right now, I, didn't, I don't have the picture because it's being built right now. But I know a lady in charge in the mountains of the National Institute for Indigenous Peoples. And that family is getting a house built by the government. Oh, wow. It's only, it's going to be very basic. It's mud bricks, aluminum roof, and cement floor. But it's going to be four or five rooms instead of the one little room with the wind blowing through the walls and all that sort of stuff. So I think one of the reasons I feel especially blessed to be there is any grain of sand, I get to see the smiles and the gratitude and the, I hear, thank you, God, from these people. And a teacher, I don't, you don't necessarily see that. You hope. But I was a teacher at the seminary. And my hope was that the seminarians I was teaching, they would, they would be great pastoral priests and all that, and they wouldn't sell sacraments. But then sometimes I go to... A parish and the young priest that was my one of my top students 
There he is. The sick man comes in and says, I want a mass because I'm very ill. And the priest says, well, do you want the $2 mass or the $5? Well, what's the difference? Well, the $2 one, I'll say it. The $5 one, I'll sing it. And St. Augustine says that if you sing, you're praying twice. And the man says, well, which is the better? And the priest says, well, definitely the $5. And you see the man reach in his pocket and try to come up with the $5 because he believes that God is more apt to help him get better if he pays the $5 rather than the 2 And I'm inside thinking, this is embezzlement. This is, you know, Pope Francis would shoot this. Well, he wouldn't shoot him, no. but he would definitely speak to him. Yeah. But And I try to speak to them, but they justify it saying, well, look, it's for the, for, so that I can put gasoline in my truck. The priests down there don't get salaries. Okay. They live off the sacraments. Oh, that. And that, so when, that's difficult. When yeah, they need money, they have to, the price for mass or a baptism may go up. It's, that's a, yeah, that sounds like a systemic problem. Yeah, it is. Not necessarily, yeah, okay. That, that actually almost changes the tone a little bit. Not that it, makes it better but uh, you can almost understand it a little better not that I would condone selling no, sacraments no, no, no. in any way shape or form yeah. so but. and and up here like it it's common courtesy or whatever to give the priest what like well, up here it's a well a, one of the reasons that people are so accepting with me is that for 10 years, from 96 to 2006, I was the bishop's secretary. Okay. The bishop's right-hand man, I accompanied him. The bishop was the kind of guy that if this man walked in and wanted a mass, the bishop would say, I'd say it. Well, what does it cost? Well, do you have money? Yes, I've got a little here. And he'd say, well, please bring your wife to go to a doctor or bring the sick person to a doctor. And if you don't have enough here, I'll help you out. Or Mike will drive you in the truck tomorrow morning okay. or stuff. And the people, that kind of response, the bishop's message was always to the priest, please, most of the people aren't going to have direct contact with the institutional church very much, mm -hmm. the priests. If they do, please do what you can so that when they walk out the door, they're going to be saying, thank you, God, for allowing me to be a member of such a wonderful institution. But trying to get every penny out of their pocket isn't no. exactly the way to do that. But so if who, uh, we, Jeff Cavins talks about riding with your posse. Who are your go-to saints? Who are your, your, your saints that you're... Oh, well, one would be St. Oscar Romero in El Salvador. Okay. I did work in 1989 in El Salvador. Yes. This week is the anniversary of the six Jesuit priests who were murdered on November 16th in 1989. I was there when they were murdered. I was kicked out of the country the day after they were buried. But just as a Salvadoran saint is Oscar Romero. And the other is, I'm taught scripture at the universe. The other is Jesus. You know, I... Yeah. He's my go-to guy. 
Yeah, uh, he's the go-to guy he help, for sure. Helps me out, and uh, and uh, so yeah, more. I'd say Jesus is him. Well, he is the the way, the truth, and the light. That's right. So I want to thank you for visiting us in person in the pub last time. And if you want to hear about uh, your your El Salvador, they can go back and check out episode three or five, whatever it is, uh, on the Dram with Friends. And uh, Boring. You, no, it, it was anything but boring, and that's why we wanted <laughs> to make sure we had you back. So I don't know if you know, but the term whiskey comes from a Gaelic term called Ishkabaha, which means water of life. Oh, okay. And my my prayer is that you continue to lead many souls to the true water of life. Oh, thank you. God thank willing. And you pray for me and I'll pray for you. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Do I have to finish this now? No, you don't. <laughs> mm. It's easy to finish. It yeah, comes down very nice. I hope you are enjoying this content. Please like and subscribe. Share with a friend. Also, Go to godsquad.ca where you can pray with us and for us and consider donating so that we can continue our mission reaching men wherever they're at. Thank you. As